0: This is The Light Inside. I'm Jeffrey Biesecker. Personal growth. On our journey to become our best selves, we often consider it to be a vital part of our happiness. However, with the amount of time spent striving for individual progress and excellence, why doesn't our growth equate to greater joy? Examining what brings us hardships and pain, so many of the various problems people struggle with are actually the result of the same trap falling into habitual patterns in their response to circumstances, understanding occurrences, believing in constraints, and succumbing to self-doubt. This creates anxiety and outrage. It holds us back and builds up bitterness. It also stops us from expressing ourselves honestly and genuinely. But we have the capability to move away from the old beliefs, suppositions, in mindsets while embracing new natural hopeful perspectives on ourselves and the opportunities that surround us. Hedonic adaptation is the process by which humans become accustomed to emotional, mental and physical stimuli. On the surface, this appears to be superficial, leading to a more comfortable, even joyful existence. However, when hedonic adaptation is taken to its extreme, it can lead to emotional dysregulation in the adoption of destructive defensive coping mechanisms. Judging our emotions as either good or bad can have a significant impact on our psychological well-being and our ability to regulate our emotions effectively. Our guest psychotherapist, the certified mindset coach and certified NFP practitioner, Byron Athene, teaches us how to move from hamsters to happiness while ditching the hedonic treadmill of dissatisfaction. When we return, To the light inside. When it comes to mobile service providers with their high rate plans, extra fees, and hidden cost or expenses, many of the big name networks leave a bad taste in your mouth. Mint Mobile is a new flavor of mobile network service, sharing all the same reliable features of the big name brands, yet at a fraction of the cost. I recently made the change to Mint Mobile and I can't believe the monthly savings, allowing me to put more money in my pocket for the things which truly light me up inside. Making the switch to Mint Mobile is easy. Hosted on the T-Mobile 5G network, Mint gives you premium wireless service on the nation's largest 5G network. With bulk savings on flexible plan options, Mint offers three, six, and 12-month plans, and the more months you buy, the more you save. Plus, you can also keep your current phone or upgrade to a new one, keep your current number or change to a new one as well, and all of your contacts, apps, and photos will seamlessly and effortlessly follow you to your new, low-cost Mint provider. Did I mention the best part? You keep more money in your pocket. And with Mint's referral plan, you can rescue more friends from big wireless bills while earning up to $90 for each referral. Visit our Mint Mobile affiliate link at thelightinside.us forward slash sponsors for additional mobile savings or activate your plan in minutes with the Mint mobile app. In this episode, we'll explore how hedonic adaptation can lead to emotional dysregulation and how to recognize and prevent it. We will also look at how defensive coping mechanisms can have an adverse effect on mental health and provide insight into how to avoid this. Finally, we will learn how hedonic adaptation can create an emotional rat race while gaining a better understanding of how to effectively mitigate this problem. Byron, what is hedonic adaptation
1: and how does it often play a role in emotional dysregulation? Okay. Oh, thanks, Jeff, and thanks for allowing me this opportunity yeah. to communicate with all your lovely listeners. It's an honour to be on your show. So hedonic adaptation. So my my view of hedonic adaptation and a hedonic treadmill. It's the idea that we are fundamentally predisposed to focus on things that pleasure us, and we prioritise those things in life. So we, we we tend to have a hedonistic view of life as opposed to there be a more, I don't know what to call it, a, a more substantial theoretical purpose basis. It's mainly about pleasure and the things that we think will give us pleasure. So the, he, he, the hedonic treadmill is the rules that we think govern our experience of pleasure. So with that in
0: mind, how much of a human being's time is spent in a state of emotional activation? And are we designed to live in a constant state of emotional activation?
1: I think 100% of our time is spent in activation of some sort. That's my view. I think we are always switched on. We're always switched on. But... Certain times we use our different emotions in, in different ways, and my, I, got, I, I got a completely different view of what that means when I discovered what I believe is the truth behind why we have bad emotions in the first place.
0: I tend to vary on my perspective in that human beings are not designed to constantly be in a state of emotional activation while emotions are a natural and important part of our human experience they're intended to be adaptive responses to specific situations rather than a constant state of being therefore seeing it as important for humans to regulate and manage their emotions in order to maintain psychological and physical health let's look at happiness for instance right so often we get caught in that notion that we're striving for that constant state of happiness, which can become somewhat suppressive in some instances. Definitely. We then are so focused internally on creating this state of happiness Mm. that we might neglect interacting with some of the other emotions we might have. Sometimes those emotions being adverse, sometimes those emotions being beneficial, Or on the flip of that, sometimes we see that as positive emotion and negative emotion. Okay. Let's open the door. I know you have a baby theory that revolves around how we relate to positive and negative emotions. Yeah. Let's dive into that a little bit today for a deeper look at how this baby theory plays out
1: in your mind of how we deal with positive and negative emotions. Okay, so let's dive into it. And, and so I've learned that I can't I can't really say what the baby theory is. I've learned that most people don't really want to hear the truth. Most people want their current beliefs confirmed. And so when I found this, I tried to share it only to be met with criticism or people rejecting it. I thought, well, hold on. So I thought, okay, I've got to be a bit more strategic. I've I've got to talk about it in a certain way. So because of confirmation bias, if people aren't willing to accept it, what I need to do first is disconfirm their current belief. Once I've disconfirmed their current belief, there's a void of truth and the baby theory fills this void of truth. So I wonder if I'm able to kind of take you through the same process that I take my clients through in the hope that they're in a better place to be receptive, to be more receptive to this theory. I wonder if I'm able to take you through that process. Yes.
0: So very often, we move into that emotional state of suppression and then develop defensive coping mechanisms. Definitely. Ways Definitely. that we become emotionally avoidant. Yeah, definitely. So let's jump right in, if you will.
1: The floor is yours. <laughs> okay, thank you, thank you. Okay, so let's let's imagine let's imagine that there are ten sensible-sounding reasons for the existence of bad emotions. I believe that these ten sensible-sounding reasons are all wrong but they're sensible sounding reasons. So everyone believes in at least one of these reasons. So we're not gonna have time to go through all 10. So what I'll do, I'll disprove the top three with the understanding that if I can disprove the top three, then I'm surely able to disprove the seven that don't make as much sense. So I'll I'll take you through the, the top three. I'll show how if one person believes them, that means that they're part of one group, but there are at least two other groups who can immediately disprove the theories in two completely different ways. So that that indicates, I believe, that the theory probably isn't true. Because if it were true, there couldn't be that level of immediate disputation or disputation at all, much less immediate. So after after we've gone through the top three theories, I'll quickly go over a few other feasible sounding theories just to make sure that we aren't kind of missing any bases. And then after we've gone through all of the other sensible sounding theories, I'll then explain what the baby theory is. So, okay, so here we go. So theory number one is called the contrast theory. So the contrast theory revolves around the idea that bad emotions exist, because if they didn't, the good emotions wouldn't be as good. What do you think? Do you think that's a a sensible-sounded theory? Let me contemplate that a moment. Mm.
0: By contemplating it, I open myself up to first explore and say, where might my own heuristics and biases come in? Yeah. Where might, first and foremost, I engage the effect heuristic? Which dictates we allow our emotions to govern our opinion and our view rather than being open to the data and the information that's available. Yeah. So I'm going to go there. This is an area I know might fall right in line where we're going today because, first (laughs) and foremost, am I jumping right to my pattern beliefs, my conditional beliefs, or am I opening up to allow the new information to come in?
1: Okay. Which is it? You tell me.
0: Positive and negative, from my view, can be subjective or objective. Do we have a more objective view of Definitely. whether that positive Definitely. is beneficial or adverse? Or do we have an objective view of
1: whether or not positive and negative, both? That's Well, that's actually theory number two. That's, that's actually fairy number two. Fairy, fairy number two is the usefulness fairy, but let's, yes. let's look at fairy, fairy number one. Fairy number one right. is right. bad is there because if it wasn't, the good wouldn't be as good. So, for example, someone who believes in this fairy, they can enjoy a sunny day because they're comparing that sunny day to a rainy day. Yeah. Or someone can enjoy nice food because they're comparing that nice food to food that isn't as nice.
0: So, interacting with that, we can also run into a myriad of different biases and affect heuristics. That resolve from that, you know, therefore just the subjective view of good and bad become a limiting unconscious belief based on your past experience
1: definitely and then that, um, I wouldn't quite put it that way but that is a way of disproving the universality of the truthfulness of it so I'll disprove I'll it in a way that I usually do to my clients so, okay so someone in group one like I said enjoys a sunny day because they they're comparing that sunny day to a rainy day There's so someone in group two doesn't need a rainy day to enjoy a sunny day they can just enjoy a sunny day which is I think hopefully most people's experience is that they don't need something bad to help you identify or enjoy the good but in some situations that might just be what we've done with our emotions. Sometimes if we have seen a a film that's below par, if we see an average film, that average film might seem a bit better. But someone in group three enjoys things less because of the contrast. So someone in group one says the contrast has to be there. Someone in group two says the contrast doesn't have to be there. Someone in group three enjoys things less because of the contrast. Someone in group three thinks, what's the point of being happy on a sunny day when it's just going to rain tomorrow? So diving into that, first and foremost, again, we're looking at
0: confirmation bias, that tendency to seek out, interpret information in a way that confirms or acknowledges our existing beliefs, which also leads us to the illusory superiority bias. That false sense of confidence that says how we've experienced the day whether we see that as inferior or superior dictates how we're going to interact with that emotion. That then to me leads to the self-serving bias where again, we're looking at internal factors to dictate our opinion and view on something based on that emotional interaction. How do we start to acknowledge that then exposes our heuristics where we're patterned and conditioned Usually in an unconscious manner, it's back there in the
1: background until we make awareness of it. Yeah, definitely. Or like I think you said, the key word there is awareness, just being awareness of it. If we're aware of biases, then we're less likely to be automatically affected by them.
0: So what, from your opinion, then is one of the core or the core factors that drive that need to validate and substantiate
1: that internal belief? I think, well, I guess that question does tie into the whole general argument of well, why the hedonistic um, treadmill adaptation exists in the first place. I think it's based on an illusion. And yeah, when I when I go into the baby theory, maybe I can circle back to that and explain how that illusion sort of feeds itself and self-perpetuates and it's, is reinforced. Objection number one, bearing in mind I'm saying we feel bad Only because that was the only way we we could get our needs met as babies. People have said to me, but what about those babies who didn't get their needs met? How did they grow up? What did they do with their emotions? Well, unfortunately, those babies didn't survive because they didn't get their needs met. Mm. So they died of hunger. They died of like thirst or exposure. Um, Those of us who got our needs met enough so that we survived, notice the connection between feeling bad and getting our needs met and in feeling bad and getting our desires met, and it's been an unconsciously running program ever since. So that's the first objection. The second objection is people have asked, but does this apply to every single instance of bad emotion? Surely there are times when you're just in a bad mood and there's no particular reason why you're in a bad mood. And I I don't think that's the case. I, I think, I think it's less likely that you're feeling bad over nothing. It's more likely you're feeling bad over something, but that thing might be cu- currently outside of your awareness. If you've explored, you'd find out what it is. Yeah. So the third, the third objection is um, people. People have asked, but does this apply to everyone? I'm saying this applies to everyone. Um, if if there was a if there was a manual for the human being, this would be in it. I think it's just it just is it, it runs across the board. People have said, but surely, surely some people are exempt. Surely, what about people? What about people with hormonal imbalances? What about people with chemical imbalances? What about people who are clinically depressed? Surely they're they're not going through the same process. Well, I think they are. I think it's the same process, but because of someone's potential chemical imbalance or hormonal imbalance, they might be upset about things that wouldn't ordinarily upset them. Maybe there are more triggers. Maybe the triggers are prompting more intense feelings. Maybe the intense feeling, feeling is lasting longer, but it's the same process. There is something happening that you don't like. So the last objection, the last objection. And this is the one that kind of, I think, kind of ties up the whole um, uh, the whole baby theory in terms of, well, what does it mean? What does it mean? All right. OK, so people have said, but even if this is true, how are you not going to feel bad when certain bad things happen because they're so bad? How are you not going to feel bad? Like what if someone what if someone dies? If someone close to you dies, how are you not going to feel bad? And I'm like, well, if someone close to us dies, we we are going to feel bad because we feel bad when things happen that we don't like. So that obviously includes when someone dies, because we don't want them to die. But surely, the fact that we can feel so bad that bad that bad emotion can be so intense that that provides detail to the theory, because there's a correlation between the intensity and the duration of the feeling relative to the significance to, to the significance of the thing. So if there's a small change we want, we're going to make ourselves feel bad. But if it doesn't change, then we can just move on and get on with the rest of our life like if you if you lost ten dollars of of money i guess you'd feel maybe a little bit annoyed but then you would think well yeah okay you you wouldn't put that much subconscious energy into into um trying to prompt change you think well i don't need i don't care um as much or enough but if there was a if there was a big change that you wanted you're you're gonna make yourself feel like absolute crap that's why Emotions like grief and bereavement last as long as they do and feel as crappy as they do, because that's something that's something that you really want to be different. So you are going to make yourself feel like like you're going to make yourself feel horrible. And so that 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 hopefully explains why we feel so bad at certain things, but not bad at other things. It depends on the emotional investment. The higher the emotional investment, the worse we're going to feel when things don't go our own way.
0: Now, that's an interesting role for me to then step back and look at what element or role does context play in how we interact with that? Why might we be triggered by simply that act of questioning? To me, opens up a whole
1: lot of potentially suppressed, disregarded feelings. Potentially, yeah potentially and again because we we suppress those feelings because of that's a protection me- mechanism we we feel that we are we are unable to feel those things because we don't understand them and so we are going to try to lock them away but then certain things are going to happen where that lock's going to be inadvertently opened and then we're feeling these things
0: and I feel inherently from my perspective that connects us with that act of avoidance or those defensive coping mechanisms, now, might there be oftentimes a core primary emotion of fear that itself drives that view that itself governs and dictates this need to embrace these biases?
1: Possibly, possibly. But I think a f- fear, again, fear is, is, is one of the um, emotions in, in theory number two. So I'll go into fairy number two. Hopefully it will all kind of come, come together. So, okay. fairy so <laughs> number two. Fairy number two is the, is the usefulness theory. So this 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 very states that bad emotions are in some cases more useful than good emotions. And so fear definitely fits into this because someone could say well do you need a bad emotion there because like for example bad emotions like fear if you're in a if you're in a risky situation uh, your bad emotion fear is going to get you out of that risky situation and in some cases people might say then fear isn't even a bad emotion because it's a very useful one. But I believe that although you can get good results from negative emotions they aren't going to serve you better than good emotions in all situations even fear because you could be you could be paralyzed by fear which means you're in a danger situation you're feeling fear and you're not thinking straight you're panicking maybe and so because you're panicking you might be putting yourself in even more danger in my mind that leads us to the emotional
0: stacking bias I'm doing my homework today on my biases. I did a little research. <laughs> emotional stacking bias arises when we seek to suppress certain emotions, and can lead us to emotional stacking, where we move from one emotion to the next becomes kind of a form of yeah. redundant or you know what we sometimes call ruminated or overthinking. Okay. Yeah. It increases our urge, our drive to overreact in a lot of ways, and ultimately can lead us to make hasty decisions based on those emotional interactions. In its most severe form, we start to shut down. We move into that fight, flight, or freeze phase of dorsal activation where we just simply block out information to shield and again become a defensive coping mechanism
1: yeah definitely definitely and so that what you just said disproves the 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 argument from a certain perspective like the 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 bad emotion in terms of fear will serve you better than than a so-called good emotion like being relaxed if you're relaxed you'll be free thinking you'll be more in a um, in a more resourceful state so you're much more likely to do the thinking necessary to increase the chances of getting out of that risky situation easier or better I believe. So as we get
0: triggered by that interaction, it's self being an emotionally driven trigger. Yeah. Does that frequently become an emotionally avoidant behavior? Then?
1: I think it would depend. It, it depends on the person. It depends on the situation. I think we we tend to use the emotions that we think will serve us the best. That's done by testing. So if, if, if in the past we think emotion has served us the best, we're going to use that. Um, emotion in recurring similar situations i believe it's not it's not necessarily the best one to use but what else can we do aside from kind of refer to our past and do the best we can so in that regard we're
0: relying on an anchoring bias where the past experience becomes our normal yeah becomes our conditioned response our autonomic response We also venture a little bit into the ambiguity effect where we start to blur the lines and discount data. Ultimately, what I feel we do is shut out then any additional available data.
1: We shut down. Which is true. And that's another way of highlighting um, the fact that these emotions, it's it's not as black and white. It's not a case of saying, "Okay, well, then bad emotions will serve you better. Because it does depend on the situation. It does depend on your past and your um, your view, your personality, and, and other factors,
0: potentially. You know, looking at that from, hopefully, a somewhat emotionally disengaged or distance perspective, we start to see where that becomes an autonomic response again, where we move yeah. into that sympathetic activation. Yeah. Moving us from the prefrontal cortex into the amygdala, where we take the logical brain offline and go back into that survivalistic brain. Yeah. And pointing at different spots in my head, I know that (laughs) I'm probably not... Anatomically correct in my direction,
1: <laughs>
0: prefrontal I am, but then I moved to the side. I don't know why I went to the side because it's actually back. So <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I knew I knew where you meant. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Look, hopefully, hopefully, theories one and two have been uh, have been disproved. So fairy three, this one's going to be harder to disprove because I've I I think this is the one that makes more sense but it's kind of it's hard to disprove but i'll i'll aim to give it a go so okay so third theory is the inevitability theory and that is bad emotions are just bound to happen they're written in they're (laughs) written into our dna it's they're unavoidable inescapable and that means if you're going through a bad event and you don't feel bad, you are either lying to yourself or you are suppressing that bad emotion. And on a side note, that could also mean then that a bad emotion, the same one or another, is going to come up at another time.
0: There again, we're moving into bounded rationality. We used it right in our descriptor today. Yeah. Bounded rationality is, in its perhaps more simplified manner, forming boundaries or our own kind of. Blind spots in our ability to more openly and effectively view things. Yeah. We're automatically then engaging in the availability heuristic in that regard, where we start to discount things. We start to automatically invalidate things consciously or unconsciously. A lot of times I feel that's going on unconsciously. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Unconsciously, subconsciously we're somewhat aware of it but then from my perspective are we then again moving into that emotionally avoidant tactic of discounting the behavior
1: yeah possibly again yeah again i think it does depend on the on a person and a situation so okay uh, so there's there's a the way i try to disprove this argument that bad emotions are just bound to happen because to me it's a matter of interpretation so there, there is there is I don't, I don't really want to get into the whole kind of moral relativism argument but it's I I don't think there is a bad event. there's an event that even 100 percent of people would think is bad that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad because somewhere down the line even though everyone agrees it's bad now there could be a change and yeah there there could be like a, a the, the time could turn and people could think that it's not so bad so I, I don't think things are good or bad objectively it's a case of um, we think they're good or bad and so that's what we do with our realities we think they're they're, they're good or bad so there's a project at work it is this this project is is undertaken by three different people they they get feedback that doesn't sound entirely glowing. so mm-hmm. person one who represents group one they they feel attacked they feel criticized they feel they feel angry but they don't express the anger at the at the line manager who gives who gave the feedback because because that person is fearful of potential repercussions. So they hold on to that anger, they don't express it. They go home and then they find themselves being angry at their partner or their kids or their pet or their friends. That does happen, it's called displacement. There's a lot of displaced anger in the world where someone's angry at one thing and for one reason or another, they're unable to express anger at that thing. So they express it at a safer or more accessible target. That, that's person one, and may, maybe even most people would respond in that way, um, hence this is, this is such a sort of a common theory. So, But person two doesn't care. Person two doesn't care about what their line manager thinks about their level of work. So they're, they're not lying about not caring, they're not suppressing any bad emotion, there's no bad emotion to suppress. Person three, who represents group three, they um, initially respond like person one. So, they feel bad at first, but then they realize that that feedback was actually constructive. And they could take this constructive feedback on board and become a better employee because of it. So, person three is the one who's able to reframe it. And I think reframing is where this theory falls down because I think no matter what event you're in, you could reframe that event. So e- e- even if you 100% confident that it was bad, somewhere down the line, you could think, oh, actually, maybe it's not so bad. Somewhere further down the line, you could think, actually, that event was good because it led to this good thing happening or that good thing happened.
0: You know, so often in that regard, we're driven by fear, perhaps, yeah. other emotional interactions for that need for a definitive sense of certainty. In what ways can intense emotions undermine a person's capacity for rational decision-making, even when the individual is aware of the need to make careful
1: decisions? Yeah, well, I think I think because, because bad emotions are such an entrenched conditioned response, when they kick in, they take precedence, it's, especially certain emotions, like for anger. Sometimes someone gets angry, someone gets angry, they see red, and there is no talking them down beyond a certain amount of time or before a certain amount of time they they's almost like they need to calm down they, they they need to engage with whatever internal process that they need to do to not see red and then they see reason again.
0: I want to share a little secret with you today about a podcast booking and matching platform I truly love. As a podcast host and guest, my go-to podcast booking app is PodMatch.com. If you currently have a podcast, regularly guest on podcast, or if you are new to the podcasting game looking to start your show, PodMatch.com is an industry leader. They quickly and effortlessly connect ideal podcast guests and hosts. Their process is super easy and highly effective. Create your free guest or host account and set up your profile. It's really that easy. And the Podmatch AI will work its magic in the background, delivering your ideal interview matches within minutes, tailored uniquely for you. As a host and executive producer of the top 100 self-improvement podcast, The Light Inside, I found more high-quality guests on PodMatch than anywhere else and in a fraction of the time. So if you're looking to expedite your podcast booking experience, fill in your calendar with high-engagement content, creating value and meaning for your listening community. Check out PodMatch.com. That's P-O-D-Match.com. Dot com today and discover your ideal match magic. You know, so often from my perspective, that triggers us. That cognitive distortion of black and white thinking, or perhaps catastrophizing, where either we're limited in the black and white thinking, yeah, you know, by either or thinking we're seeing only small portions of data and information, yeah, or on the converse, other side of that, catastrophizing, yeah, where we just simply see the adverse negative more impactful result that comes from that angle
1: yeah yeah definitely
0: so when we are emotionally activated and triggered might we become more susceptible
1: to cognitive distortions and subjective biases in that regard okay definitely when when, once we're activated we pretty much have to go on the ride and hope it doesn't take us into too too a place or too adverse a place but we are once we're activated we're sort of we're we we then series to we become subject to a series of autonomic or automatic processes
0: byron from your perspective how then might these emotionally activated stages also reduce the efficiency of our brain's ability to more effectively process data
1: it all starts with awareness. So once you're once you're aware of a few basic fundamental principles about how our brains work and how our bad emotions are maintained, that's where you can start to take conscious control of that subconscious process or that unconscious process.
0: Now for me to interact with that from that perspective, that activation kicks us back, like we mentioned before. Okay. Out of the prefrontal cortex, where yep. our active working memory is, and we move back into the amygdala, which is solely based on fight, flight, freeze, survivalistic, emotionally driven interactions, reduces our brain's working memory because that memory is
1: yeah. The prefrontal. Yeah. In fairness, I mean, there's, I, I can't, I, I definitely can't fault the system. I can't. <laughs> the, the way our brains work, it's there's, there's genius genius but what's less than desirable is that the brain is perfect at running programs but sometimes those programs can be unhelpful and unhealthy so if those unhelpful unhealthy programs are left to run they will run they'll continue running and they'll do whatever they will lead someone into a situation that may may be adverse or unwanted but um, the brain is working perfectly its job is to run that program and it will it's a case yep. of taking charge and, ins- sorry, sorry, it's a case of ensuring that we are running rational programs, helpful programs. You
0: know, as an illustration, I don't know how fully accurate it might be or how contextual it might fit. I like to compare that system to our automobiles, especially modern automobiles now that we have computerized control centers. Yeah. Yeah. Are we looking at that emotion as a signal, much like our warning lights, our check lights, the things that pull our
1: awareness and tensions? I don't believe so. And that, that is another theory. Yeah. That's another theory, but I, I don't I don't believe so. Because I, I think for that for that signal to be activated, a process has already happened. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not as if that signal is the first step of a process. The the process has started already and then the signal, signal appears. And so, so let's dig into that a little bit.
0: This is backtracking and backpedaling a good deal. What are the essential roles from this perspective and within this model of our emotions? You know, what key factors do they then play throughout that
1: process? Okay, right. So let me so that that's, that's this is an ideal time to just say what a baby theory is. But rather rather than saying what it is, Jeff, I wonder, I wonder if you you in, indulge me because I I don't want to yes. say what a the theory is. I don't want to say what a the theory is. I I want to ask two questions, and in answering those two questions, you you are going to be. Unknowingly telling me what the fairy. So well, I guess knowingly, since you you already know what a the fairy is. But <laughs> I'll, I'll, for the sake of your, for the sake for the sake of your viewers, they they are going to be hearing a skeleton version of the baby fairy in in your answers. And all I'm going to do is just add flesh to it. I'm going to add clothes to it. I'm going to yes. put it put it into a car and drive that car somewhere. Excellent. Okay, so here we go. So question number one. Question number one. Why do babies cry usually? Generally. Why do babies cry? I'm going to go with probably
0: my more programmed belief and try to move into that pattern. Okay. Usually from an underlying unmet need for protection, for food, for safety, for acknowledgement. Let's
1: look at those. Let's point out
0: what some of the more common beliefs are.
1: Yeah. Okay. But I'll, I'll, I'll add to that. I'll add to that because that's that's a reason. And I want to talk about method. So a baby cries for those reasons, but it's crying because it doesn't have another form of communication. Yeah. So my. Yeah. So the response is a baby cries usually generally because there's a need or desire and it can't communicate that need or desire in any other way. So it cries. Yes. OK, so question number two, question number two. What is a typical response to a baby crying from the caregiver or someone close to them? it might be twofold you know is okay. it the emotional
0: response reaction initially of whatever the emotion stimulates does the parent go through a f- phase of fear do they go through anxiety do they somewhat stop and get caught in that cycle of processing rumination or are they being emotionally regulated to me that's a twofold question now that might be jumping way ahead <laughs> But do they move into that shutdown phase? Do they move into that fight or flight phase? Do they move into some other outwardly adverse on the very far end of the spectrum where if we're dealing with a very, how do I frame this, unhealthy interaction with their emotion that becomes somewhat abusive in nature? I'm going to frame it as abusive in nature, neglectful in nature. Or do they move into a regulated phase? I'm going to load it up today.
1: Okay. Okay. Well, I or, or. Yeah. Well, I I think I think a more simplified answer is a typical response is when a baby cries, a baby cries, the, the a typical response from a caregiver or someone close to them is that they tend to the baby and they find out what the baby needs or wants. I mean, the stuff that you said might be happening as well, but yeah. that's that's what tends to happen usually. The the baby is tended to. When we act more instinctually. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Even, yeah, okay. So, okay. So, so a baby cries usually because it's something it needs or wants, and it can't communicate the need or want in any other way. But a typical response from the caregiver or someone close to them is that they tend to the baby, and they find out the, the need or want, and they hopefully meet it, and then that stops the baby crying, ideally. Okay, so the baby theory. The baby theory makes clear that the only reason why adults still feel bad is that we needed to feel bad as babies to alert someone that there was something wrong in the environment because there was no other way of doing it. And that's a process that we are still running. So let's let's imagine that ideally a baby is in a state of equilibrium or balance. They have everything they need. I'm talking about a newborn baby, so I'm just talking about basic needs here. So they have the right amount of food in them, the temperature's within the right range. That feels good. All of their needs are being met, and that feels good. Now, when there's even one unmet need, so there's a problem with the food, there's a problem with the temperature, that triggers a state of disequilibrium or imbalance, and that doesn't feel good. And because a baby can't say, Oi, I'm hungry, could you turn the heating up or down, please? The only thing the baby can do is crudely express the fact that there's something wrong by crying with the hope that someone comes along, identify the need that's not being met, meet it, and that returns the baby to a state of equilibrium again. So a baby uses that process to ensure that their needs are met as quickly as possible, and it works more times than not. Now, the near-newborn baby starts to have desires. They want to interact with the world in ways that they didn't before. When they perceive an obstacle to a desire, so they're unable to interact with the world in a way that they want to, they know that bad feelings gets results, bad feelings prompts intervention, so they make themselves feel bad, they express the bad feeling in the hope that someone comes along, tends to them, and gives them what they want. And that's a process that's running continuously and we were never taught that that's what we were doing as babies instead of being taught that that's what we were doing as babies we get taught these other reasons for the existence of bad emotions like we need bad to know good or bad emotions are more useful than good emotions but i think that's the reason why we are we have bad emotions we get on that hedonic treadmill because of that process that we needed as babies, but we don't need it as adults, but it's still running in the background because it's an unconscious process. That's that's my stance.
0: As we step back and look at this more expansive view, it's curious to me then to kind of pinpoint and look at how perhaps some of our emotional trauma phases start to take form in that early interaction with our caregivers. Okay. We start to form those patterns of subjective belief. How much of that lingers then throughout the rest of our livelihood? How much of that starts to form that trauma bond, not only with the parents, but in how we interact in our relationships?
1: Yeah. Well, I think that would again that would depend on the on the individual. I mean, there are early traumatic experiences for, for, for certain people, and if, if they're not processed, then they will continue to linger until they're worked on or not. But I think the baby theory, as I'm talking about it, is before that because the, the I'm, I'm not talking about trauma. I'm I'm talking about simple sensation, um, intervention, and observation. We know how we feel. Yes, we know that. After we feel a certain way, we get what we want. And that that's that just that simple idea is reinforced countless times. So it's an, an embedded, entrenched, unconscious response that we were never taught about. So this this it this simple basic response is there in everyone. But instead of being taught about it, we we get layered other false views about why the bad emotion is there. And that's what we're talking about. And trauma is here say i'm talking about something yeah even more primary than trauma trauma is one of the things that a a baby can experience because of certain situations i'm talking about before that the connection i'm trying to make is it happens in all babies before possibly before trauma could even be a thing to be honest i mean because i suppose trauma trauma is usually a conscious thing we had to bridge
0: that gap into starting to form some of that what we deem more logic reasoned thinking again.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I think so. I, I think so. And and this 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 the original response I'm trying to describe isn't part of that process. It's overlooked for whatever reason. It's not even in a race. It's not even in a race. So, so when I so when I found it, I thought, oh my god, can can this be true? And if this is true. Why isn't this a thing? Why, why, why is this not not more commonly known? I mean, someone pointed out recently that it sounds it sounds a bit like the the ferber method, you know, the, the Ferber method yes. of, um, yes. of yeah. So it, it sounds like the Ferber method, but I think the Ferber, ferber we'll method. We'll mention been, that
0: in our show notes. Oh, you know, okay. Diving in because I think that might take us off path today. No, oh, fair enough. Okay, all right. Wait okay. a minute. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, all right. Let's so, give, give us a brief overview, Byron, of the Ferber method.
1: The, yeah. So as far as I know, the Berber method is the understanding that um, if your baby is crying, especially if it's nighttime, you should just leave it. You should you should leave it to cry it out. And that's the best way to parent your crying baby, especially at nighttime.
0: So learning self soothing. Exactly. Through exactly. emotional self regulation. If yeah. we learn to balance from a parental model. Yeah. When a baby genuinely has need and when we start to become somewhat emotionally triggered ourselves in our interaction.
1: Yeah, I think, um, well, if we are going to talk about it later, I won't say, say anything more. I, won't it. I, I think we'll want to include a right little around. sidebar
0: unless you feel we can expand on that. Or if this is a key element of describing where we're going with the baby mom.
1: It's it's not really a key, um, a key element, just that I think from what I've heard, the Ferber method comes the closest in saying what I'm saying. But it, it does have some key differences. And because of those key differences, this is something completely different, really. Okay.
0: And do we need to expand on that? Is there more we we'd like to add today to that? Or
1: sure. Okay. Yeah, okay, okay, I can do. Okay. So so Ferber methods. Yeah, the, 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 the Ferber method has been largely discredited because that means that if your baby's crying, you could be neglecting your baby because it could be crying because it has a need. So that's the that's the uh, as far as I've I've heard, that's the biggest criticism towards the Ferb, the Ferber method. So I, I see your point that that you made about self-soothing. You should we, we, we could encourage a baby to self-soothe, but doing it in that way. Isn't entirely useful because a baby doesn't need to self soothe when it's hungry; it needs food. Well, a baby doesn't need to self soothe when it's hot or cold. The temperature needs to be adjusted because the <laughs> baby could die if it's not. And especially food—if it doesn't—if it continues to not get food, it will obviously, do, it will obviously die. So, yeah. So that's, that's 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 a key difference between what I'm saying and the further method. Another difference is um, self soothing at that stage may not be the the best time because a baby isn't going to remember the fact that it was able to self-soothe. A baby needs to be, I think, a baby needs to be taught. Once conscious memories begin, that's the best time to teach humans things, because then, because then the individual let's, has a chance to remember.
0: Let's frame that perception of the age gap when those responses start to form. What okay. are the generalized age boundaries that we tend as human beings to start initiating those more conscious, engaged thoughts as a child?
1: Well, I've, I, I think if you are going to teach your child something, it makes more sense to do it from the age of like three or four, but a chance to really consolidate. Because I think any earlier, not that I'm saying we can't teach our children earlier, but I'm, I'm saying for um, for increased success, or to increase the chances of success, I think if we teach a child at a stage where it's able to recall and remember, then we are in better standing. And again, I I'll, I'll, I'll presuppose I'll pre- that I'll preface that by saying, obviously, we can teach children earlier because t- children learn things earliest too, or so. But w- will that person, when they're eighteen, remember learning that thing when they're two? No. Do they need to remember? Probably not. But these important things, it makes more sense that they remember, because then if they remember, they can have understanding of it, i.e. understanding of why we have bad emotions, why it felt bad when our needs weren't being met, what we then did to that process when we adapted it to meet our desires. That, I think, will be better placed with a person who's able to remember and understand. From
0: that regard, then, at what stage... Is it most commonly believed then that we start to form interactions such as the trauma wounding, trauma bonding,
1: or that inner child wounding? Yeah. From from my understanding, I would say it's somewhere between probably somewhere between four and four and eight. Typically, although yeah. there are obviously outliers, so if just just before just, just after, but but let's be clear. I mean, we we, we can be wounded at any point in our stage, um, any stage of our life, any. So, but I I'd say typically the like, the clients I've I've worked with when we talk about original child trauma, that's usually the age range. It's somewhere between four and ten.
0: It's not to say that we go willy nilly up till then and just neglect our ability to self-regulate and form effective, empathetic yeah. connections with our yeah, children. Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of,
1: course.
0: of course. I want to put that out there just for that frame of reference, though. If we happen to bump into a listener who's wanting to try to kind of quantitate this and put it into context. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think it and, also segues us in nicely to any number of other conversations we might have had in the past, or we may be preparing for the future. I know there's particular where we look at those roles of inner child healing and inner child wounding so yeah that'll be play a nice little segue in that match (laughs) good stuff so do you feel i'm gonna take a moment here between you and i byron do you feel we've touched all of the key touch points that present this theory today or is there something further we need to do to Kind of hit the touch uh, point on the theory. Well,
1: maybe, maybe I'll 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 just re. Is, well, I'll um I'll try to describe one important point because just just hearing this isn't going to be that effective to someone. Yeah. Just because if if they just hear it, it's just going to be one of a number of different <laughs> theories that they can take on board. So, um, I'll I'll just say once you. Um, try to disprove the baby theory, as in, can you think of a time where you had a bad emotion and there wasn't something that you wanted changed? Or can you think of a time where you had a bad emotion and you didn't perceive a problem? I think most people would, would not be able to think of a time where they had a bad emotion and they haven't perceived the problem. And that, to me, negates every other theory about bad emotion that We've, we could even discuss because the common the common thread or the common ground in every single situation that in- involves a bad emotion mean is there's something, um, there's a problem happening and I, I'm saying we can trace that back to when we were a baby when feeling bad used to be our way of prompting intervention and help um, having someone um, um, intervene and resolve the problem for us and that's, that's been an unconsciously running program that we're just, we're maintaining unconsciously maintaining ever since so for this for this to really take hold we need to acknowledge that the bad emotion is a conditioned response for a very specific reason we need to start to condition a healthier more helpful response yeah. so byron
0: in this regard would this lead to heightened emotional sensitivity in some individuals as their ability to self-regulate
1: then decreases yeah. well definitely well i i I think if you take this on board, your your ability to self-regulate will definitely increase because your your, your de- like deregulation happens because you're unknowingly running this process, which is useful for a baby, but isn't useful for an adult. <laughs> so I think, yeah, I think this is the best, from my point of view, this is the best way to help someone to re- regulate their emotions.
0: So in many regards, you know, we've learned to model this behavior, not only in our Parental interactions as we mature as adults through our normal day-to-day interactions, might we then go back and take the baby steps to relearn some of this new model of emotional processing to heal some of those inner child woundings? Well said. Well put. Yes. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs>
0: that was a full circle moment for me. I thank you for bringing that today because that's a point over the course of my coaching career that I've consistently went back and said. So often, just how we frame that experience of our emotionality dictates so much of our perspective in how we interact.
1: Definitely. Definitely.
0: Going back to square one sometimes is that essential step where we form our new sense of value and our new sense of purposefulness. So from that perspective, happiness set point. Let's make a little point of highlighting that and how this then interacts with our ability in how we form our base level of
1: happiness set point. Yeah. Okay. So my view, my view is happiness is our default condition, but happiness is a bit misleading because happiness could be kind of, um, uh, substituted for a number of words like fulfillment, contentment, Get very leisure. ambiguous about it. A it's lot. definitely, definitely, definitely. You know, what is happiness is yeah. you know, out there with what
0: is the meaning of life? You know, we kind <laughs> of tend to form those beliefs and patterns based on our past experiences. As is, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But no, this this, this actually ties ties or um, brings to mind something that that you said earlier about the um, the the efforts we go through to secure happiness or to or to um, or to maintain pleasure. I believe the the single best thing we can do to secure genuine, worthwhile, permanent, easy to sustain happiness is to truly understand what unhappiness is and that's the baby theory unhappiness is you relying on an archaic process to remove <laughs> obstacles to happiness and that's it Yeah, there
0: leads us into some of those concepts of emotional intelligence and emotional maturity which ultimately guide us toward our level of personal maturity in a lot of ways you know we can sometimes form, from my opinion, a very kind of stigmatized bond with how we relate with those ideas of maturity. Yeah, I think so too. So in that regard, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna frame just simply pointing out that from a common perspective, a person's happiness set point refers to their baseline level of happiness or life satisfaction. Yeah. Again, can be a very broad, ambiguous subjective view to begin, this then tends to remain relatively stable Mm -hmm. over time, despite changes in our life circumstances. I think that's a key element from that definition to me, despite life changes in our circumstances. Yeah. From that perspective, when we develop those skills of emotional intelligence that empower us with emotional self-regulation. We learn then to become simply emotionally adaptive rather than operating from hedonic adaptation, which is merely just seeking
1: that goal of happiness. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that that reminds me of, um, of, I was going to say something earlier. So I, I I think true happiness is actually being in equilibrium. I think that's the original state of perfection equilibrium. But somewhere really early down the line, we then created an illusion of equilibrium plus. And that's what I guess most people call happiness or desire. And that's what we are on the hedonic treadmill trying to achieve.
0: From that regard, we look at, we mentioned in our pre-conversation, that concept of edamonia, which is that state of even hum. We'll really simplify it today. Kind of an even hum where you aren't easily emotionally triggered and emotionally dysregulated. Yeah, yeah, definitely. From that perspective, share with us, Byron, how you view our ability to reduce our need for hedonic
1: adaptation overall. Yeah, there's a couple of things we can do couple of things we can do. First of all, like I said, um, acknowledge that our negative emotions are a, a deeply entrenched condition response that um, used to be helpful to a baby, but now now they get in the way. Now they disable us. Now now they did the our our bad emotions in certain situations disempower us. Even though some people might say, well, no, they, they feel empowered by their bad emotions, like anger or whatever. But um, no, I, I think, again, I, I think if you're angry in a situation and that gets results, you could arguably get better results by negotiating or being persuasive as opposed to being angry. Because if you're angry, that your anger could be met with more anger. because you So your anger might just be escalating the situation as opposed to resolving it. So... I think um, seeing through the illusion is something that we can do. The illusion of the grass is greener. If, if, if we believe the grass is greener, then we are we are going to be in a constant state of not being satisfied or happy with the grass that we're on. And that is the perfect grass. So seeing through the illusion. Seeing, seeing through, when the, and there are, I say the illusion, there are different illusions. There's the illusion of better. So the grass is greener. There's the illusion of need as well, the illusion of need. Sometimes we want something and we turn that um, we we, we turn that desire that may may have started flexible. We turn it into a rigid demand. We all of a sudden we don't we don't just want that thing. All of a sudden we need that thing. And our bodies respond to needs different than desires, because if we need something, that means we are going to die if we don't get it. And obviously that's not true. You're not going to die if you don't get that new car. you're obviously not going to die if you don't get that better job, but that's weird. that's the illusion that's one of the illusions that we that we are um, led by because it's it's an illusion well, those those two illusions, the illusion of better, the illusion of need, those are illusions that we've been falling for our entire lives pretty much Now that takes us back full circle in my mind to that. Illusory
0: superiority bias where we we'll exactly. simply say, Exactly. Is this good? Is this bad? Is this exactly. positive? Is this negative? Yeah. How might that often become a defensive coping mechanism with viewing either perspective of positivity or negativity? Can we become somewhat say toxic reluctantly or in an unhealthy relationship with that balance
1: of positivity? Yeah. I think so I think so I think it it depends on our current it it depends on our current perspective I think because if you know what I'm guessing you know what cognitive dissonance is yes yeah so 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 this 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 could play out you so you could you could have a belief that's well I want that thing and for one reason or another you don't get that thing then all of a sudden you then create a conflicting belief of well I didn't want that thing in the first place so you you coming up with that that uh, that latter belief that's that's the defense mechanism. That's the coping strategy. And it, it's a coping strategy that we didn't need if we put that original desire in its more rational objective context of well, it would be um, I might enjoy life a bit better if I had that thing, but I might not. So I, I shouldn't even care that much about having it. So if you if you start off with that premise or foundation, then you are less likely to need a coping mechanism or strategy if things don't go your own way. Now
0: there again, we're going back full circle to exploring how intense emotions lead to cognitive distortions, such as the black and white thinking, catastrophizing, yeah. and a wide number of additional mental heuristics where we simply discount the available information. Yeah. So with that in mind, they become Again, a form of unhealthy defensive coping mechanism where we become suppressive and avoidant, from my perspective, to our emotional interactions. Yeah. So, with that regard, what beneficial and healthy coping skills can we utilize to develop a greater
1: sense of psychological safety and emotional regulation? What's healthy coping mechanisms? Well, again, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but (laughs) acknowledging the baby theory, (laughs) acknowledging why you're having bad emotions, acknowledging that your good emotions are a bonus as opposed to the grand prize. Existence is the grand prize and we're here already, so we've won we've already, the fact that we were born we, we won the grand prize, but we don't see life in that way because of our good or bad emotions. We think, okay, well then life, we even forget, we, 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 we're so quick to devalue life. We're so quick to devalue existence. And so because of that, we then want that thing over there. And to the point where if we don't get that thing over there, then our lives are not as good or rubbish or whatever. So in that regard,
0: and I'm going to kind of, use this to wrap us up today maybe by okay. Okay. finally rather than leading to our happiness and this is a little expansive in thought maybe <laughs> in what ways might a consistent pursuit of personal growth frequently lead us to feel unhappy rather than happiness
1: yeah because we're looking at that thing that personal growth from a skewed perspective because yes. if, if we if we if we look at it as a plus one bonus, then if we don't get that plus one bonus, it's fine. But if we're looking at it in that life as plus five and that thing as plus sixty, if we don't get that thing, we are going to disturb ourselves, we are going to get upset. And then that's when coping mechanisms, unhealthy coping mechanisms might kick in. So it's a case of truly trying to see life for the immeasurable gift it is. I guess I love that perspective
0: so often in that pursuit of certainty we look to simply form those bounds of measurement rather than just being vulnerable and open to that experience of the journey along the way yeah yeah exactly (laughs) that's my big takeaway today I want to thank you for this truly amazing conversation today Byron is there anything we failed to address or kind of bring to the table in our conversation today that you feel we might bring to light?
1: Um, nothing's coming to mind. No, I think, I think you did a very comprehensive job in, in answering those, <laughs> those questions and in the way that you did. So no, I, I think, I think we covered it. I think
0: we did a good job too, from what we've, we set out. I truly want to thank you, Byron, for sharing this very insightful and eye-opening conversation today. I feel from a personal perspective, this is an angle we very often discount yeah, taking the definitely. time to look at. Yeah. So I truly thank you for shining a light on that for us today.
1: Well, I thank you for allowing me to shine the light. <laughs> I, I, I thank you for allowing me to to communicate on this platform. It's a, it, It's been a pleasure and an honor.
0: So where can our listening community go to discover more about you and your services and
1: your perspective on this virus? They can go to our website, www.byronathene.com. So my name without uh, any like dot or underline or whatever, uh, underscore. So com. Thank you. Thank you again,
0: my friend. I would love to have you come back and have another conversation soon. Anytime. Oh, thank thank you. you. Thank you. You too. <laughs> our individual pursuit of growth and excellence does not always equate to joy due to regular responses, beliefs, and self-doubt. Today, we learned that hedonic adaptation on the surface can be beneficial. Yet, when taken to extremes, can lead to emotional dysregulation and destructive coping mechanisms. Judging our emotions can influence our psychological well-being, inhibiting our ability to effectively move away from dissatisfaction. Therefore, the trap of the hedonic treadmill creates anxiety, obstacles, and often bitterness. We can, however, move away from old mindsets and embrace new, more helpful perspectives. If you found value and meaning in today's show, please share it with a friend or loved one. And as always, we're grateful for you, our valued listening community. This has been The Light Inside. I'm Jeffrey Biesecker.